Well, would you turn with me to John chapter 8? John chapter 8, and we'll be considering verses 48 through the end of the chapter. While you're finding that, I want to just sort of set the tone of our thoughts this morning. There's a theological distinctive which really separates Christianity from all other religious systems, if you can call them that, all other belief systems. It's a belief which really sets us apart from everyone else. It is a belief which, like it or not, agree with it or not, categorically makes Christianity incomparable with any other belief system. It is the belief upon which all of mankind will be judged. It's a belief which stands at the very core and the center of the theological soul of of Christianity. It's a belief which comes under fire and scrutiny from pseudo-Christian cults such as Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Unitarians. It's a belief which is joked about in the mainstream media at best and is angrily denied in the mainstream media at worst. It is a belief that we as Christians hold very dear to our hearts. And in fact, it is a belief that's necessary to enter the kingdom of God. This belief, which is our theological distinctive, which sets us apart completely, which makes us incomparable with anyone else, which is the basis of coming judgment, which is at the core of our theological soul, which is denied by pseudo-Christian cults, which is necessary to enter the kingdom of God, very simply is our belief in the deity of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus is God. He is fully God, very God. And anything short of a belief in the biblical understanding of Jesus as equal in essence and equal in attributes to God should be considered heresy and, in fact, will be grounds for all who fall short in this to be sentenced to an eternity in hell. Because what you believe about Jesus Christ is the central theme at the judgment seat of God. Now, the deity of Christ is clearly expressed in Scripture. There is no doubt whatsoever. You don't have to look very hard for this doctrine. Philippians 2, verse 6 says that Jesus is equal to God. Philippians 2, verse 10, God the Father declares that Jesus will be worshipped as God. John 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. John 28, 28 and 29, John 20, rather, 28 and 29, Thomas called Jesus. He said, you are my Lord and my God. Titus 2.13, Paul calls Jesus our great God and Savior. Hebrews 13 verse 8 assigns the attributes of immutability, the unchanging nature to God by saying Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. John chapter 1 verse 1 calls Jesus the Word who was with God and the Word who is God. Colossians 2, verse 9, In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus said that we are to worship God only, and yet he received worship. Matthew 2, wise men worshiped him. Matthew 14, men in a boat worshiped Jesus. Matthew 28, women after the resurrection of Jesus worshiped Jesus. John chapter 9, a man born blind worshiped Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter six verse, chapter 1, verse 6, rather, God commands angels, you will worship Jesus. People prayed to Jesus. Stephen in Acts 7.59 said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And in the spirit of prayer, Paul defines Christians in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 as those who 
Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a term for prayer. And speaking of Jesus, in what I think is the greatest single statement of the deity of Christ in all of the New Testament, God is quoting Psalm 45, verse 6, in Hebrews 1, verse 8, and he says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So there is no lack for spiritual evidence and truth concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. But what's astounding to me is that even in the face of the scriptural truth of the the God nature of Christ, that truth has often lost relevance very, very slowly over time. And sadly, that truth has lost relevance in the church. That Jesus Christ is not lifted up, not exalted the way he ought to be, the way he used to be. For example, mainstream evangelicalism is still represented by whatever sells in Christian bookstores. That's how we know what mainstream evangelicals think. And still wildly popular in mainstream evangelical circles is Sarah Young's 365-day devotional book, Jesus Calling. She sold somewhere in the vicinity of 20 million copies of this. And she claims to be speaking for Jesus because of her belief, you ready for this, that scripture is insufficient. She says, quote, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. She claims to speak for Jesus, and yet she sounds nothing like the Jesus of the Bible at all. To Sarah Young, Jesus sounds like this, and these are quotes. When your joy in me meets my joy in you, there are fireworks of heavenly ecstasy. Or, wear my love like a cloak of light covering you from head to toe. Or, bring me the sacrifice of your precious time. This creates sacred space around you, space permeated with my presence and my peace. I think it's interesting that Tim Challies writes, quote, The Jesus of Sarah Young sounds suspiciously like a 21st century Western middle-aged woman because it's not Jesus. And yet, Christian bookstores cannot keep that book on the shelf. As a matter of fact, having sold 20 million copies, it's not a surprise that Sarah Young published a sequel, 365-day devotional. Her publisher did an initial printing of a million copies. It was the biggest initial printing they've ever done. And yet, she says things Jesus would never say. Then there's the denigration of Jesus Christ in Pentecostal and charismatic circles. The focus of these groups is never on shared theology. Don't ever think that they're theological. They're not. It's on shared experience, particularly the shared experiences of speaking in tongues, the the now-ceased miraculous gift of having an unlearned ability to speak a foreign human language. And so you can have, because they, they focus on shared experience, you can have Catholic charismatics who believe in sacramental salvation by works. You can have Lutheran charismatics, some of whom believe in redemptive infant baptism. And you can have Baptist charismatics, some of whom say they believe in salvation through faith alone. Many charismatics today continue to espouse the idea that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second work of grace that happens sometimes after salvation rather than at the moment of salvation, as Romans 8 teaches. Many teach that speaking in tongues is evidence of having received the Holy Spirit. And many, many in these circles teach that either speaking in tongues or having some sort of other ecstatic experience 
is evidence of salvation from the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that so wrong? Why is this so dangerous? Other than the whole spiritual gifts controversy, the major problem is that in those circles, the test of salvation becomes what you think of the Holy Spirit, not what you think of Christ. And they've gotten off completely. This is a subtle way of making Jesus the means to the Holy Spirit instead of what John 3 teaches, that the Holy Spirit is the means to Jesus. And so in charismatic circles, you will constantly hear sermons and references to the Holy Spirit, since the Holy Spirit is supposedly the means to all of these experiences, which is their shared commonality. And rarely will you hear the consistent emphasis on the glory and the majesty and the dominion and the magnificence and the honor of Jesus Christ. Then we have the denigration of Jesus Christ in mainstream, mainline denominations. United Methodist lesbian minister, and I don't even know how to comprehend that phrase, but United Methodist lesbian minister Karen Oliveto, she wrote this, quote, Too many folks want to box Jesus in, carve him in stone, create an idol out of him. By the way, she's a hero in the United Methodist Church. But this story cracks the pedestal we've put him on. The wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting one, prince of peace, was as human as you and me. Like you and me, he didn't have his life figured out. He was still growing, maturing, putting the pieces together about who he was and what he was supposed to do. We might think of him as the rock of ages, but he was more like a hunk of clay forming and reforming himself in relation to God. We have a crisis of not knowing how to worship Jesus anymore. But this isn't really a new phenomenon. The denigration of Jesus Christ began during his ministry, as we'll see today, the refusal to give glory and honor to Jesus Christ as fully God. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3 speaks of the glory that is due to Jesus. For Jesus has been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. In other words, the created should not get as much glory as the creator. Now, what does it mean when we talk about the glory of God? Well, there's two basic meanings in Scripture. First, the glory of God is an attribute that refers to his nature. The Hebrew word for glory means weightiness, the heaviness, the importance of God, his magnificence, his grandeur is manifested to humanity in various forms when he gives a visible or audible exhibition of his nature. But the second way we would understand glory in our focus this morning, that glory is the proper response of humanity to the stunning, exhilarating brightness and blazing purity of God Almighty. That it's a response. It's something we give. It's something we do. And really, the decision to either glorify Christ or nullify Christ is the most important eternal decision that a person can make. And the marvelous 1780 hymn that we sang this morning, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, it really reflects the desire of every true Christian, every true believer in Christ, to elevate Jesus to his proper position. And the phrase which repeats and resounds in our hearts and crown him Lord of all and crown him Lord of all and crown him Lord of all. And the hymn, it's saturated 
with an unashamed proclamation of the deity of Christ, it says that angels are to worship him, that he alone is worthy of the crown of heaven, that all majesty belongs to him, that the only right response to Christ is to fall at his feet in worship, giving him honor and praise that is due to him. Not wear my love like a cloak of light. Jesus is God, the king of all. He's not some effeminate new age philosopher. He is God and is to be worshiped as such. Now, the hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, hail is not a word we use anymore unless it's storming outside. What does it mean? It means to cheer. It means to applaud. It means to greet, to commend, to exalt, to glorify someone. That is what a worshiper of Christ is to do. And we've been using some of the great hymns of our faith to see what the hymn writers know, that the setting of spiritual truth to music is so instructive, so useful to us, it really is among the most powerful of all teaching and worship tools we have. And all hail the power of Jesus' name really captured the essence of our text this morning in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 48. We can worship Christ because of the salvation that he alone has provided by dying on the cross to bear the penalty for our sin on our behalf, that the awful price of sin that we owed to God, and so we worship Christ because of that. And Jesus took this upon himself, and he only asked one little thing in return, one tiny little bitty thing, total devotion and loyalty and love for him at all costs. How small that is. And therefore, the only right response is to hail or to glorify the power of Jesus' name. We're going to see this in our text this morning, and I'm hopeful to exhort you using this text to glorify the attributes of Jesus Christ as God. I want to give you five attributes of Christ that we can glorify. Five attributes of Christ to glorify. First, glorify his prestige. Glorify his prestige. Now, to get us caught up on the story, Jesus is coming to the close of the conversation that he's been having with the hypocritical leaders of Israel, the soul-deadened, selfish frauds who claim to be the spiritual gurus of their day. And this conversation is taking place now on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And he's been questioned from every angle, and he's consistently putting his opponents back on the defensive, and and he wrecks their arguments one after another. And he's just finished proving to them that they are, in fact, children of the devil instead of children of God. And so they're not happy right now, but he's reaching the end of his conversation with them, and he just lays it all out there. Now, these hypocrites, since they can't fight Jesus with logic or with Scripture, they resort to verbal abuse And they begin to reveal really the depths of their hatred for him. And Jesus is going to land what we might call a knockout punch. He's going to shock them into, you ready for this? Spontaneous attempted murder. Verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, it's interesting that the Jews, whether on purpose or not, they accidentally admit that they've been spreading lies about Jesus because the phrase, are we not right in saying, reveals that what they've been saying to Jesus' face is what they've been telling others all along. What is that? Well, two things, that he's a Samaritan and he has a demon. So what is that about? Well, the Samaritans 
were a people that the Jews despised, and it went both ways. The Samaritans hated the Jews just as much as the other way around. The Samaritans lived to the north of them. They were the, the physical and spiritual half-Jews, so to speak, the descendants of Jews left behind when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. They had intermarried with the pagans who had been sent there by Assyria to repopulate the land. And so there's great animosity between Jew and Samaritan and Samaritan to Jew. And one of the ways they expressed this animosity was to question each other's lineage, to question each other's heritage. The Jews questioned the purity of the Samaritans as not completely Jewish, and that was an established fact. But there's also some evidence that Samaritans believed that Jews were actually descendants of Cain, the wicked son of Eve, and they believed that Cain was born when Satan sexually seduced Eve. And that's where Jews come from, is from a union of Satan and Eve, rather than Seth, the righteous son of Adam and Eve. And so given the fact that Jesus had just said that these leaders are sons of Satan, they're children of the devil, they turn around, they question his origin. He's a Samaritan, since he had just told them who his father was, that his father is God. And then second, they accused him of having a demon. And this was really what condemned not only these leaders, but for a time, all of the nation of Israel. They were representing Israel as a nation. Their official judgment of Jesus is found in Mark chapter 3, verse 22. This is a, their official edict. He is possessed by Beelzebul. It's another name for Satan. And when Jesus is verbally reviled here in verse 48, he doesn't show shock. He doesn't revile in return. For their verbal and spiritual and blasphemous abuse, he simply calmly answers them. In verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Now, just a little point of detail here. These are emphatic pronouns in Greek that he's mocking them, and he's, he's putting them immediately on the defensive. He's polite, and yet the message is, is very clear. What does it mean that it's an emphatic pronoun? Here's how it is. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. In other words, if anyone has a demon here, it's not me. And if anyone here is honoring God, it is me. And since you dishonor the one who honors God, he's saying you are dishonoring God. While he was on earth, Jesus never sought his own glory he never sought his own fame. He never exalts himself. He never lifts himself up. He's simply passing on what his father wants him to do. And what does his father want? His father wants Jesus to be glorified and exalted and lifted up. We see this in verse 50. Jesus continues, Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. That it's the father who judges between Jesus and his accusers. And it is the Father who's judged Jesus to be worthy of glory. And, and this is so significant. This is so important for us. Because God says, and you have to listen to this logic. He says in Isaiah 48, verse 11, My glory I will not give to another. That God alone is worthy of glory. And yet God says, give glory to Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is God. And how much authority does Jesus have? Because of who he is, he literally has the authority of life and death over every human being who's ever been born. Verse 51. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That if anyone obeys the gospel of Christ, who does what Jesus preached to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he will never see death, meaning that death will not have victory, death will not have any dominion, and eternal life will be the reward for those who have faith in Christ. That's prestige. To have authority over all the lives of every human being who's ever been born, to be judged by God as worthy, to receive glory as God, to be given the right to decide the eternal destinies of everyone. Can I exhort you to do something? Yes, remember that Jesus is your friend. Yes, remember that he is your savior. Yes, remember that he is your spiritual eldest brother. Yes, remember that he is your advocate. But once in a while, don't forget to tremble before him. Don't forget, his prestige is like none other. There's no comparison. There's a second attribute of Christ that we could glorify. Glorify his perfection. Glorify his perfection. Verse 52, the Jews answer, The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? If you have a note in your margin, you might put duh next to verse 53. So what's their logic here? They're saying, look, the heroes of the faith... Abraham and the prophets, they were mortal men who died. By the way, during Jesus' day, there was a movement by some Jewish leaders to declare Abraham immortal. And so for them to admit that Abraham died, it was a big deal. They questioned Jesus' claim to be able to keep someone from death. But here's the problem. Jesus didn't view Abraham as dead. In Matthew 22, verse 32, he reminded his listeners that God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the what? Living. And so for Jesus to be the God of Abraham, that's not a big deal. He's still alive. He just doesn't happen to have the same body that he used to have. Abraham had simply transferred as a faithful follower of God to his place of reward with God. And so the implication of these hypocrites was very clear. Only a crazed, demon-possessed man would say something like that. And so Jesus answers once again in verse 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Jesus is simply stating that his glory is due to the fact that it's the Father's will to glorify him. To put a contrast to this, Isaiah 53 also says it was the Father's will to crush him. And so he does whatever his Father says. Jesus is doing nothing more than stating the fact of his deity. He doesn't glorify himself, but neither does he deny that he's from God, that he is God, that he is glorified by God. What does it mean to glorify the Son? Well, it means to give him honor. And I think it's important for us to take a moment and drill down a little bit more deeply in what the idea of honor is. In the ancient Near East, honor was a very significant cultural value, and the Jews were no exception to this. To give someone honor was to acknowledge that his place was superior to yours in the scheme of human hierarchies, that this person is above you. To give someone honor meant that you were to speak of them, speak to them, and behave 
toward them in a manner that's fitting of their position in their rank. And in the monotheistic Jewish system, to honor God meant to speak of his exclusivity, that he alone is the creator, he alone is the sovereign, he alone is the king. And so to give honor to any other creature as deity was always, in the Jew's mind, to detract from the honor of God. And so the thought of linking together somehow the honor of God with the honor due to someone else, it's not explicitly really stated in the Old Testament and certainly wasn't ever a part of Jewish thought in Jesus' day. But then Jesus comes along and he says in John 5, beginning in verse 22, for the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son, listen to this, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. In other words, If you say you honor God but will not honor me, you are a liar. And in fact, for Jesus to say anything other than this truth would make Jesus a liar. And he says this in verse 55. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. I love how easily he says that. I would be a liar like you. They are the liars. They say, I know God, but they don't, so they're liars. Jesus says, I know God, because he is God. He is from God. He is of God. He is glorified by God. But now Jesus is going to make a claim that gives a reason that God the Father glorifies him. What's the reason? In the verse 55, but I do know him and I keep his word. John 6, 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Earlier in the same chapter, John 8, verse 29, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The sinlessness, the perfection, the purity of Jesus Christ is so clear in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2, 22 says that Jesus committed no sin and never uttered a single dishonest word. Some of you have uttered dishonest words since this service began. We're sinners. He's not. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus on earth was tempted by everything we've been tempted by, yet without sin. 1 John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And I love this. 1 Peter 1.19 calls Jesus the unblemished, spotless Lamb of God. The perfection of Jesus is absolutely essential to your salvation and essential to mine because he's your only hope for a substitute life to present to holy God instead of your sorry, sinful, rebellious life. You have nothing to give to God. You have nothing to present to him, nothing to show. If there's no perfect life to substitute for yours, then God has no basis upon which to view you as righteous. And if you're not righteous, then you can't be in his presence. But we have the glorious truth from 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for our sake he made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We glorify Christ for his perfection. There's a third attribute of Christ I would exhort you to glorify. Glorify his preeminence. Glorify his preeminence. Verse 56, 
Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus puts himself above Abraham. He puts him in authority over Abraham. He puts himself as the focus of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. Now, the irony here is that earlier in this same, the same men had claimed to be the children of Abraham. And Jesus rebutted this claim by saying, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. This is not what Abraham did. And so now Jesus mocks them. He says, your father, the one you're claiming, the one you claim to be like, he rejoiced in me. Why aren't you doing that? Now, what was the day of Christ that Abraham looked forward to seeing? Most of the time, the idea of the day of the Lord or the day of Christ refers to the coming era of judgment in general and the specific day of the return of Christ in more specificity. But in this case, the day of Christ is simply the day when Messiah finally came to earth, when there was the presence of God physically on earth. And Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced that he would see this. And this is a subjunctive verb. Don't try to remember that. It simply means it's a verb that means, I hope and I wish that something is going to happen. Now, a biblical hope is a certain hope, but it reveals the heart of Abraham, that there is an anticipation, there is a joy in Messiah. Certainly very unlike these Jewish leaders who have the Messiah of God literally standing right in front of them. And yet they're furious, they're jealous, and they're murderous. But then Jesus shocks them and he tells them that Abraham saw, past tense, the day of Christ, the coming of the Messiah, and was glad. And so Abraham not only had joy in anticipation, but he had joy in fulfillment as well. The joy of anticipation can certainly be easily understood from God's promise to Abraham In Genesis 22, that his offspring, a singular seed, a singular descendant, would come and possess the gates of his enemies and bless all the nations of the earth. That's the joy of anticipation. But what about Abraham seeing the fulfillment of the coming of Messiah? How do we understand that? Well, we can narrow it down to two incidents that gave Abraham such faith in the promise of God that for him, it is as if he did see the promise actually fulfilled. It gave him 100% certainty of the coming of Christ. The, The first incident that gave Abraham such faith was the miraculous birth of his son, Isaac. When Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah, his wife, was 90, they had this baby. This isn't exactly a virgin birth like Messiah, but by any standard, that's a miraculous birth. And the second incident... When Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac at God's command, this ironic sacrifice, this ironic command, that this is the son through whom I've promised to bless you and bless all the nations, through whom Messiah would come, sacrifice him. And of course, you remember that God delivered Isaac, saved his life, and in a sense demonstrated that God had a very special hand on Isaac. Now, why would we say that those are the two incidents that gave Abraham such faith that he could rejoice to see the day of Messiah. Because these are the two incidents that the Bible says Abraham looked at. They're not just guesses. These are the moments highlighted in the New Testament. In Romans 4, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, As it it is written, I have made you, speaking of Abraham, the father of many nations, listen to this, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, 
and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul is equating the birth of Isaac, the son of Abraham, bringing into existence something that doesn't exist with resurrection from the dead. And that is clearly a messianic sign, a sign of Messiah. And then Hebrews eleven nineteen gives the reason that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Quote, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Again, a messianic sign of resurrection. And so Jesus can very, very accurately and precisely say that Abraham saw two clear indications of Messiah that are so obvious to Abraham that it's as if he were seeing Messiah right before him in the person of Isaac, his son, whom he knew to be the means through whom God would bring the singular seed, Jesus Christ, into the world. So Jesus claimed that Abraham set his hopes and his dreams on Messiah, claiming preeminence even over the greatest hero of all time. The question I have to ask myself as I study the word and the question that I would ask you after having asked myself is, is Jesus really truly preeminent in your worship and in your obedience? Is he really preeminent? Because in this case, words don't mean that much. In this case, actions tell all. Jesus said that if anyone would follow him, he must deny himself, take up his cross, meaning to suffer anything he asks you to suffer and identify fully with him. This is total, full submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, following the commands of Christ, no matter the cost, no matter the backlash, no cultural concerns, no excuses, no rationalization. And I have to say, from my over 20 years in pastoral ministry, that's rare. That's rare. How rare and precious are those few times when the elders of this church or the elders of any church, for that matter, can confront sin in someone and see them crumble in submission and in humility. That's rare. That's very rare. The membership covenant that all of you sign that say that you will submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to your elders. I've had people tear that up in my face because when it comes to actually dealing with sin, following Christ at all costs, they back off. You know what that says? Jesus isn't as preeminent as your words say they. His words say he is. He is preeminent. There's a fourth attribute of Christ to glorify Glorify his presence. Glorify his presence. Now, I prefer to use the word perpetuity, but that's hard to say and spell, so we'll go with presence. The perpetuity of Christ simply means that he is perpetual. He has always been, that his presence has always been a fact and never not been true, if we can use a double negative. Jesus is going to claim perpetuity, to be eternally present. Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Now the Jews picked the age of 50 in this statement likely because this was the age that the priest was to retire from Numbers chapter 4 verse 3. And it was also generally considered retirement age when your sons, your children were to take over the family business. That They're not saying that Jesus was almost 50 he was at most in his early 30s. Luke 3.23 tells us that Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30. What they were saying was, you're not even near retirement age, and you say you've seen Abraham? 
Now, did you know this something? This is what Satan does. They just proved that they are children of the devil. Did you notice that they twisted his words? Jesus did not say that he saw Abraham. He said Abraham saw his day. They're trying to trap him into a blasphemous claim to have seen Abraham, which would have to make him God to have seen Abraham. That was not what Jesus was saying. But then he did a, well, now that you mention it moment. And now he took the opportunity to make a claim that brought out their murderous, wicked souls. Verse 58, now that you mention it. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, literally before Abraham was born, I am. Now, to date in the Gospel of John, this is easily the most shocking thing that Jesus has said. We expect an object to this statement. I am what? It's just, I am. This is nothing less than a claim to complete and total deity. This is a claim made by God numerous times in the Old Testament. The very first I am statement of God is given, no surprise, to Abraham. All the way back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham in the land in which he was surrounded by enemies, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. The I am statement most familiar to the Jews happens in Exodus chapter 3 when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. By the way, God did not appear as a burning bush. He appeared as a man in a burning bush. We want to be clear about that. And here's what he said. Exodus 3, beginning of verse 13, records, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, I won't bore you with a whole lot of detail, but I do need to point something out. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, done about 250 years before the life of Christ, translates the Hebrew, I am who I am, with a specific phrase, and we might even, we might even translate it again, I am the one who is. And what is very, very clear is that the Greek form in John eight fifty eight that Jesus specifically says, it's identical. It's exactly the Greek translation of Exodus three fourteen. The point is, is that Jesus is using that form on purpose because he's saying, I'm the same guy who talked to Moses in the burning bush. As a matter of fact, if we do a study further, we find that that person in Exodus 3 is referred to as the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord with the definite article in the Old Testament is always a pre-incarnate appearance of guess who? Jesus Christ. In fact, the name of God, Yahweh, is characterized by the idea of I am of existence. Yahweh speaks of the existence of God, the to be fact of God, that God never had a beginning, that God cannot have an end, that he is the greatest absolute reality, that all things are in complete dependence on God because God alone is self-existent. Do you understand that God is the only entity of any kind that ever is simply because of who he is? Everything else came into being because of him. 
He is constant. He alone is the self-existent creator and everything else is the creation. There is creation and there is God. There is a separation. There is God and everything else. And so don't think that the idea of Yahweh, I am, I exist, is somehow just a statement of existence. It's a statement of complete difference, a complete different category of his self-existence. It's very interesting that the I am claims of the Bible often seem to occur in multiples of seven. Sometimes seen in scriptures as the number of completion or a number of perfection. By one scholar's count, there are seven I am statements in Genesis. In the book of Exodus, we would expect this. There are 21 Seven times three. The second division of Isaiah, which is the messianic section that that speaks of Christ, there's 35 I am claims of God, seven times five. Book of Ezekiel wins the prize at 70, seven times 10. Jeremiah has 21. All of the minor prophets together have 21. All 17 books of prophecy together have 154. That's 22 times seven, if you're counting. Now, I'm not big into numbers, but... The only reason I bring up this specificity here is that there are seven specific descriptive I am claims of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. They're qualified statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And then the unqualified claim, which stands in the category by itself, where he simply says, I am. And in the final revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of the Bible that is really the the climactic revealing of what our Savior is really like, the book of Revelation that presents Christ in all of his glory, much greater glory than in the Gospels, also makes qualified descriptive statements by Christ himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last, the living one. I am alive forevermore. I am he who searches mind and heart. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Seven of them, by the way. So the scripture goes to great lengths to point to the presence, the perpetuity, the deity of Jesus Christ. These are the clearest statements of the infinite presence of Christ. And by the way, I want you to know this. Back in John eight fifty eight, Jesus did not tell the Jews before Abraham was, I was. He said, I am. If he said, I was, then he's simply pre- claiming pre-existence. But he's not claiming pre-existence. He's claiming eternality. He's claiming perpetuity and infinite presence. By the way, it's interesting that in the Jehovah's Witness translation of the Bible, the New World Translation, I use the word translation extremely loosely because they translate according to their theology, they radically alter both Exodus 3.14 and John 58 because the connection of Christ with those two is too obvious. And so Exodus 3.14, I am who I am, all present tense verbs, by the way, is changed in the New World Translation to I shall prove to be who I shall prove to be. That's a future tense. Totally different verb. It's wrong. John eight fifty eight. you ready for this? Before Abraham was, I have been. They don't deny the preexistence of Christ, but they teach that Christ is a created being 
And so they have to deny the eternal, perpetual nature of Christ. So when Jesus Christ took the form, the Greek form, for example, from Exodus 3.14, and said exactly that form here in John 8.58, he knew precisely what he was doing, and he knew precisely what he was claiming, and he knew precisely who he was, and he knew precisely what he was telling these leaders. He is present. One more attribute of Christ to glorify. Glorify his power. Glorify his power. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The temple area was undergoing renovation, so there would have been stones everywhere. You could pick up a rock anywhere, and Jesus supernaturally escapes their attempted murder. It was ordained by God for him to go to the cross at the right time, not for him to be stoned to death. I would imagine it would be very, very confusing for these men to have had this conversation with Jesus and to have their ire and their fury finally reach the point where they're ready to act on the reality of their heart and to pick up these big rocks to throw at him and to murder him and to pick him up and be winding up, and he's gone. doesn't say how he did that. just says that suddenly he's not there. And boy, they lost their chance. They lost their chance. At the beginning of the Feast of Booths, John 7, verse 10 tells us that Jesus went to the feast not publicly, but in private. In other words, nobody knew he was there. We're not told how he does that, but nobody knew he was there. In the middle of the eight-day feast, Jesus started teaching publicly in the temple. And on the last day of the feast, the day of this entire conversation in John chapter 8, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. They missed their chance. He goes out the way he came in. He disappears once again, and he's gone. Some scholars believe that that was the moment that Jesus finally turned away from Israel, turned away from her leaders. Why is he able to do this? Because he is the all-powerful God who made heaven and earth and no man will lay a hand on him until the appointed time. Nobody will. There are only two possible responses to the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's only two possible. It's either all hail the power of Jesus' name or I curse the illegitimate demon-possessed Jesus. Those are the only options There is no neutral ground. There is no spiritual Switzerland. There's no passes for ignorance. There are no second chances. You're either in one camp or the other. There will be no excuses. You are not with him, and you are against him. There are no neutral people. Jesus is prestigious because the Father has showered him with glory and honor. Jesus is perfect because he's never sinned. He's never violated his own holiness. Jesus is preeminent because he is before all things, before all people, before everything. Jesus is present because he's always existed. Think back a 1,000 years. Think back 5,000 years. Think back 7,000 years. Think back to the creation of the world. Think back before creation. Think back before the creation of the angels, before the creation of time and space and matter. He has always been. And Jesus is powerful because this universe that has been created according to Colossians 1 by his own hand, he holds it all together, holds every molecule, every atom, everything together. And if he is prestigious, if he is perfect, if he is preeminent, if he is present, if he is powerful, 
Then the wise and humble man or woman will proclaim all hail the power of Jesus' name. All hail the power of Jesus' name. All hail the power of Jesus' name. And to do any less is to worship an idol of your own making and you will pay for it. You will pay for it. Do we worship and hail the power of Jesus' name? Amen? Amen. Our Father, we thank you for our King, our Savior. It is said that when Shakespeare entered the room, people stood. When Jesus enters a room, people fall on their faces, as it ought to be. And we come now, Lord, to a time to remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We hail him, we glorify him, we give him honor for what he has done for us. And we would ask you, Lord, now to enter into this time with us as we continue worshiping. We would ask you, Father, to forgive us for the ways we have violated your holiness, violated the purity of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in the last minutes or hours or days or weeks. And we would ask you, Lord, to receive our worship based on the cross of Christ as we come to the Lord's table at the command of Christ to remember his body and his blood. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.